Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Wherever you work, whatever you are trying to accomplish in your business, whatever your goals, whatever your development needs, we're going to argue that culture comes first. Now, the point of the day is to say why, and then, more importantly, what can you do to make a real difference in the culture of the group that you're leading? My guest today is Mario Musa. Mario is an award-winning author, consultant, keynote speaker, and executive educator who works with senior leaders around team effectiveness, communication, organizational culture, and large-scale change. And he's worked around the world with some of the largest companies you can imagine, including GlaxoSmithKline, McKinsey, Nielsen, United Health Group, Russell Investments, MasterCard. We could go on and on. Mario's work has been featured in lots of publications um, on national public radio in the U.S., as well as in Time Magazine, Business Week, Fortune.com, Forbes.com, Inc., Entrepreneur, The Economist, The Financial Times, and I could go on on those as well. Now, his prior books have been very award-winning. One is called Committed Teams, Three Steps to Inspiring Passion and Performance. And his first book, which is on one of my all-time favorite lists, is called The Art of Woo, Using Strategic Persuasion to Sell Your Ideas, which is co-written with Richard Schell. Today, though, we're going to talk about the brand new book, and it's called The Culture Puzzle, Harnessing the Forces that Drive for Your Organization's Success. So, Mario... Welcome to the show. I can't wait to hear your point of view on this one. Thank you, Wanda. It's great to be with you today. Thank you. So tell me why. Why does this topic matter to you? And more importantly, I want to know how do you get from doing persuasion to culture? The topic matters because I found in working with my clients, there was always something distinctive about their organizations. And there's that famous McKinsey quote about culture. It's the way we do things around here. And I think that's a really good idea. It's, you know, culture is the distinctive way you get things done. So as I continued to consult over the years, I more and more wanted to somehow capture that that special something about each organization. And it took me actually about 30 years to figure out how to do that. That leads to the... (laughs) Uh, the latest book. but And what I would say about this idea of the way we do things around here, I think that that's exactly right. I think that gets at something about culture that we all know and feel. And I also felt that it was possible to go a little bit deeper, a little more granular. And that's what I do with my co-authors in the culture puzzle. I feel like we found a way to talk about culture to, to make it visible, and to make it really practical for managers and leaders. Okay, great. I think everybody has a sense, well, let me rephrase this. Every time I hear a complaint about a company, and it's usually a complaint from somebody who's working in the company, the problem is always the culture. But it's this big euphemism that's really hard to point at and say, well, what is it about this culture? And more importantly, what do we do about it? So, 
I'm all in if you can tell me how to make it more visible and how to take some actions that are going to make a difference. Sure. First thing I think it's important to pay attention to is culture is what happens when a group of people come together. In other words, you can't have a group of people, whether it's two people or whether it's 2,000 people without a culture. People come together and they form a culture. That's what human beings do. Or as social science teaches us, culture is what makes us human. So that's the first thing. <laughs> you know, culture happens as, as, soon as, uh, as soon as we come together. And then that happens, and it happens for reasons that go way back, you know, millennia. But we come together, we form a culture, and then immediately we're asking four questions. Where are we going? And in the culture puzzle, we call that, that vision. Where are we going? How are we going to get there? And then the next question is, okay, we're together in this group. Well, what does it mean to be part of this group? Who's in this group? Who's out, outside this group? We call that interest in, in the sense that we all have an interest in belonging, in being part of a group. And then there's habit. And the way that comes into play is what do we do day in, day out that expresses our values? So we have a vision. We have a sense of where we're going. We know who's in our group, who's outside of our, our group. How do we reinforce that in, for example, how we have conversations, how we make decisions, how we make, uh, how we have meetings? So that's habit. And then the third question is, how might we do things a little bit better? How might we do things differently? In other words, how do we innovate? And we call that the, the force of innovation. So bottom line, we come together, we form a culture, and then it moves, if you like. We like to say culture moves. Culture comes first, and it's always moving. It moves through these forces. And that's one of the really, to me, fascinating things about culture. It's always on the move. It defines us. It's dynamic. And one reason why it's dynamic is that the environment's dynamic. The market's dynamic. Customers are dy dynamic. Competitors are, are dynamic. So it's always changing. So, you know, wanted to go back to your original question. When folks feel like there's an issue in an organization, say it's, it's all about the culture. Well, of course, because culture comes first. And it's natural for folks to feel that things could be different because culture is so dynamic. And we should always be asking, does it line up with what we need to do? Does it line up with what our people need? Does it line up with what our customers need, the market, with what our competitors doing? Are we responding adequately? So it makes perfect sense that we're always asking about the culture. Okay. So the four forces, just to rename them again, the vision, which is really where are we going and what does yeah. it take to get there? Yeah. Um, the second one is interest, which means who's in, who's out, what does it mean to belong to a part of this group, what are my commitments, et cetera. Absolutely. Habit, which are the behaviors, the actions, the decisions, the steps, the stuff we do that expresses yeah. our values and hopefully captures our values. And then the last one is the innovative force, which is really how do we do things better or change things? Move exactly. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. That's it in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We got that. We can quit. Let's go talk about something else. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm joking. Yeah. I want to come back to where I started and something you've now said twice, which is that culture com comes first. 
Now, you've made the argument, and I agree with you, you can't get two people together to do anything for any purpose without having a culture between those two people. Do you? But you mean more when you say culture comes first. So tell me a little bit about what you mean by that. Yeah. Another sense in which culture com- comes first is it defines the way we think about ourselves. It defines the way we think about our organization. It defines the way we think about our products. It's a, it, it's, in that sense, it's everything. You know, Lou Gerstner, who ran IBM and looked back on his tenure at IBM, said, you know, when I entered IBM, my first thought was there's a strategy problem. But then I realized, you know, everybody's got a strategy and there are 16 different ways to implement it. So it's not like we have any shortage of strategic thinking. He said the issue is getting people aligned. And 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 his shorthand for that is it's all about culture. Culture is the game. Or and and he went on to say culture is everything. So the point is culture defines how we think about our supply chain. It it, it defines how we think about finance. Like what kind of cushion do we need? What, you know, uh, where do we look for financing? So all these nuts and bolts questions about business. Our point is they're cultural. We don't necessarily think of that way, think of them that way, because culture is like the water that a fish swims in. We're not, a, we're not aware of it. So we think, oh, it's natural for us to, uh, to work with our suppliers in this or that way, or it's natural for us to bring this particular product in this way to our customers and to think of our customers in the way that we do. The point is, it's not natural. You have choices. And different companies do things in different ways. That takes us back to that quote. Culture is the way we do things uh, around here. And what's puzzling about culture, this is why we call our book The Culture Puzzle, is it is everything. It's all around us, but it's so hard to get our arms around it. And uh, again, I think I think having a simple framework makes such a difference. You know, so you know, we've been talking about vision, habit, interest. And innovation for us, that's the framework that that helps you put your hands on culture and manage it. Otherwise, it tends to manage you. And you know, back to the the research you were referring and questions that all, always come up. You know, biggest barrier to implementing a, a strategy is culture. Biggest reasons teams go wrong, joint ventures, mergers, is culture. So this is kind of this issue that's cropping up all the time. And it's just so hard to get distance on. And so again, that's why a framework is is so helpful. I love the quote from uh, from Kurt Lewin, the great social scientist. He said, "There's nothing more practical than a good theory." Uh, and <laughs> I'd say nothing more practical than a good framework, which is for me for me and my co-authors, it's like a checklist. Okay, what should we be thinking about? You know, do are are we not clear enough? about where we're going? Do we need to engage with people more about what's in it for them in our vision and and so on? So it's a kind of useful checklist for us. Okay. Okay. I'm going to get to that checklist in a little more detail on that. One more question to comment. So um, especially talking to entrepreneurs, people starting their own company who have the luxury of starting from scratch and therefore, in theory, starting from scratch with some definition of the culture they want to create. And yes, we start that with two or three people, and eventually we're going to grow that to hundreds or maybe thousands at some point. 
Um, and I think you have an opportunity in the early days that you don't necessarily have in the later days, or that gets a lot harder. Yeah. So many of those leaders think instead, I don't have time to think about the culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's your response to that? Yeah. So my first response is to quibble a little bit with your question. Okay, fair. <laughs> if, if, if I could, you never start from scratch. The, the, the whole idea of culture coming first is that you're always coming out of a culture. So you're an entrepreneur and, and I've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs over the, over the years. They have baggage. They have a past. You know, they've started other companies. They think about working in a particular way. In other words, those ideas come out of their culture or cultures that they've been part of. So that's the first thing. You never start from scratch. There's always a history. So I think it's important when in, in an entrepreneurial envir- environment, you're partnering with a small group uh, to have this conversation explicitly. You run through that checklist. What do we want to accomplish and, and how? And the important point about that, and this gets at another aspect of the question that you asked, is that uh, if you're not thinking about the how, the how is going to define itself as you work. So you might find that you're talking to each other in a way that maybe works for some people, but not others. Maybe some people feel excluded. Maybe they're not comfortable. Maybe you talk too much. Maybe you talk too little, Uh, so on and so forth. So you can't escape these questions. Now, I just want to clarify one point. We're not suggesting that you want to spend all your time thinking about lofty questions about purpose and people's needs and, and so on. Yeah, sometimes you just need to do your work and put, <laughs> put your nose to the grindstone. We, we acknowledge that. But at the same time, uh, the, periodically, you should step back and ask, okay, are things working for us? In other words, do we have the kind of culture that we really want? So what I would say is, yes, at the very beginning of a startup, you have a unique moment. Uh, ask, okay, where are we coming from? You know, what about our backgrounds can influence our aspirations and share that together. And that's going to be a whole lot easier to do in a smaller group than in a larger group as organizations get large. As you know, it just becomes harder to manage conversations and and communication. One-on-one communication is, is hard enough. And then organizational communication or communication across different parts of a business is, is vastly more complex. And, you know, as you mentioned, I started first, my first book was about persuasion. And the way I, I think about the, the, my books fitting together is persuasion is about how you communicate with another person and a group. And then the second book is teams is, all right, you've got a group of people how do you turn them into a team and build a team culture? And then the third book about culture is team of teams. You could think of culture that way. How do you how do you broaden out? So it's a little bit kind of like Russian dolls. And my perspective on those three uh, those three areas is that uh, all the issues around working with people, communicating, collaborating, making decisions get more and more complicated as you move from one-on-one to group to team to team of teams. Right, right. Well, I was going to ask you, and I think you just answered it, in a very large organization, yes, we may have a general culture, but I find you've got a lot more micro-cultures. Yeah, 
in smaller groups of people. And smaller groups of people may not be down to the individual team, but it might be down to the 100 or 200 kind of collection there. Okay. So let's go back to your four forces, vision, habit, um, interest, and innovation. And what I'm interested in is give me an example of what a healthy version of that looks like. Tell me a little bit about how it works when it's working well. And then I'm this checklist, you know, how do I know if we're on the right track for each of these? Yeah, uh, you know, it's working well when um, one, people are engaged. I'll give you you an example. I'm I'm working with a client that I've been working with for a long time. They're a very technical organization. It's lots of super smart engineers and they're 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 working on cutting edge problems, and um, one of the things that we're doing is kind of shifting their focus uh, as their customers change. And the way that we've done that, and uh, the way that we've done that is to engage groups across the company in a conversation about that. Very very practical. So how are you thinking about the problem? Let's say a product or R&D, uh, or a particular customer, or broadening out your customer base. Uh, we do interviews, we gather a lot of data, uh, we summarize that, we feed it back to people. And the point is, it's through that iterative process that we're building out the conversation. And just a few days ago, actually, we had a meeting, a day-long meeting, first face-to-face meeting post-pandemic, by the way. Uh, We had a day-long meeting, and I and one of my teammates were there, and we said almost nothing, literally. We did a lot of work uh, up front, but it was really the client who was was front and center, the leaders of the organization, people up and down the organization. And I would say that's one measure of a healthy culture when you have that, that kind of engagement. And then the other, uh, the other way of looking at the question, you know, how do we know if our culture is healthy, is who's staying and who's leaving? Are the, are the right people staying? Uh, or are you losing the people you really want to keep? Why is that? And if you find yourself losing uh, those people that you want to keep, then that's an indication that something's not working. Something's not working for them and uh, something's not working for the way you, you think about the culture. And then I think business measures, you know, basic business measures are also important. So what's the top line? Are we profitable? Are we growing if, if, we, if we need to grow? Those are, those are important questions as well. And often we don't think of those uh, about as cultural questions, but they are because they're connected to how do, we get, uh, how do we get our work done? So I would say that those are those three important measures, engagement, retention, and kind of business basics. And if you're asking, is our culture healthy? You know, you could add that to the checklist and then that could take you back to those basic forces. Okay, are we unclear about where we're going? Are people not getting what they want? Um, are we just doing the same thing over and over again and not innovating enough and, and so on. And it's through this uh, reflection, uh, deliberate reflection on these questions that you grow a, a healthy culture. You know, there's, there's no once and done uh, when, it, when it comes to culture. I, I think there are a lot of, uh, a lot of consultants who, who um, 
offer assessments that like will give you a number or a picture. And yeah. if that works, that, that that's fine. But our point of view is culture is more organic and and dynamic than uh, than that. And it takes a constant effort uh, to be tending uh, the, to tend to it in the way that a gardener tends to uh, to their plants and their and their flowers. You have to pay attention to it all the time. You don't make a garden grow by uh, by telling it to grow. Uh, you uh, you tend to it. And uh, same point applies to culture. The greatest, from our perspective, the greatest cultural leaders are those who think about themselves in the, uh, that way. And a, a number of leaders do, like Stanley McChrystal, uh, General Stanley McChrystal, Eileen Fisher, the fashion mogul. It's really pretty striking how many how many leaders use the metaphor of, of gardening. And I think that has to do with this organic nature of culture that we're talking right. about. Right. That makes sense. You know, as you were saying that, I'm running through my list of clients where I think they have a problem. And for me, that often shows up because they're losing the wrong talent. Mm-hmm. That's what gets me called in for mm-hmm. one reason or another. Mm-hmm. So that's an indicator that something's not going well. <clears throat> but I could run real quickly through my clients and say, is it that they lack a vision? In some cases, yes, not really. Your definition, do we know where we're going, how we're going to get there? Um, do they understand who's in the group and who's out of the group? Yes. Don't always like it. Mm-hmm. So something about the interest, the membership, the implications of being a member is not working for a whole mm-hmm. bunch of people. That's why they're leaving. Or something about the habits, the ways in which we're making decisions, we're executing things is torturous, takes too slow, too cumbersome, ineffective, and mm-hmm. no way to touch it and no way to fix it. And that gets frustrating. And I would also say innovation is there's just, you know, we keep doing and doing and doing and more and more and more, and we're not rethinking what it is we're trying to accomplish. I yeah. could run through my clients right there. They fit in one, two, or three of those categories. Sure. Yeah. So. And- just to, if, if I may, a quick comment about vision. So I think something to watch for in the, in the vision area is uh, whether your vision is, is shared. And so yeah. that's an important question. Is it a, is it a shared vision or is, is the vision mine or just the, the, the top teams? One of the stories that we start the book with, you might recall, is about Akhenaten. The, uh, who ran a really big organization called Ancient Egypt. And it's really an amazing story. It's a, it's, it's a true story. Akhenaten, uh, was, he lived about 3,500 years ago. And one day he was riding through the desert in his chariot and he comes upon a deserted valley and he decides he's going to build a great city right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he goes on and he decides we're going to have a new um, kind of aesthetic. And we're going to have new laws. I mean, essentially, new everything, including a new religion. And he installed himself at the center of that religion. He was a sun god. And uh, um, it was a very compelling vision to Akhenaten. But the archaeological evidence is it wasn't shared. So if you look at, let's say, the remains from the quote-unquote middle class of that time, there's very little about the sun god cult. And then Akhenaten died fairly early into his reign for a pharaoh, 17 years into his reign. And literally overnight, the cult of the sun god went away. And it's a kind of parable um, because so much, so much leadership today is kind of sun god leadership. 
in the sense that a vision isn't shared, people don't feel engaged, and we're not getting the most out of out of out of them. In other words, the culture is not uh, is not healthy. So, watching for that about vision is essential. Is it is it shared? Yeah, and shared doesn't mean you heard it. Shared means you're bought into it, you believe it, it resonates, you want to be part yeah. of it. That's a pretty heavy duty commitment, I think. Yeah, you feel it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's a good one. Wow. Um, I have often challenged people, as I'm sure you have, uh, let me walk around through the guts of the organization and ask them what your strategy is or what your vision is. And you pay me based on how many positive responses I get back or vice versa. <laughs> I pay you based on positive. It won't be very much. I can promise you. I also think an awful lot of visions are really goals. They're not mm-hmm. stating what we're trying to do and how we're going to get there. They're stating what numbers we want to hit. Yeah. So I'm sure you see some of the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's talk for a minute about the other three care areas. Um, let's talk about habits. How do we begin to analyze, checklist, whether we've got the right kind of habits or we've got the wrong kind of habits? Healthy habits, I should say. Yeah. So I would uh, be be really practical about this. Look at your meetings and ask yourself, uh, is our meeting time well spent? And we know from uh, many, many sources of data that most meetings are um, are not well spent. You know, as, uh, as one way I put it, meetings are where minutes are taken and hours are wasted. <laughs> so, uh, so I would say start there. And, you know, a lot of the work with, with my clients around teams has to do with how they run meetings. In fact, just yesterday, I was working with one of my teammates in a, in a global client, and that's, we followed up on a, a top team retreat and that's what we focused on. How are we running meetings? Uh, you know, how do we prepare for meetings? Do we have too many meetings? Do we go from back to you know back to back to back meetings? And uh, and so it's it's a it, you know every time you come together, you're you're reinforcing some value or set of values, and it may not be the values you want to reinforce. Like maybe what you're reinforcing is the principle that we don't listen to each other uh, or some people are excluded. So I would say, look at uh, what happens in your meetings. And there there are two or three things to pay attention to. Uh, Generally, is everyone participating? Meetings do go better. Teams do better when uh, when everyone participates, essentially. And then uh, do we have a diversity of of opinion? Groups do better, teams do better, meetings go better when there's a diversity of, of opinion. And then uh, th- three, is there a, an identifiable, measurable follow-up to our, our meeting? Follow-up is about action. Action generates commitment that, that deepens values, and obviously it's how you get things done. So I think those are three things to look at when, uh, when you're examining your meetings and asking are they reinforcing the kind of habits that support the culture that we need? Right. Um, I think every manager listening to this has to go back and take a hard look in the mirror because I don't think we're running very effective meetings. Forget efficient. I just don't think they're effective. And I certainly hear that from every human being I talk to Absolutely. about the waste of time. The, and and we've, we've lost the etiquette. 
of what yeah. it takes to go to a good meeting. We've also lost the question of do we need to meet? Or is there yeah. another way to accomplish what needs, what would be done or tried to be done in this meeting? I'm, you know, one of my pet peeves. We've lost it. We've got to get back to it. And yeah. especially as we're going to a more hybrid world, virtual and face-to-face, we're going to have to get disciplined about this. It's going to be an absolute disaster, I think. Completely agree. Yeah. And if I could just tag on one thought to that, I think when you're meeting either face-to-face or virtually or not meeting for that matter, sometimes the best decision is not to meet. Right. It, it's good to know what do we need to accomplish? Like sometimes you need to make a decision. Okay. Do we need to come together to make that decision? Mm-hmm. Sometimes that, that's helpful or maybe it's not. Maybe we could manage this via email or even text depending on the nature of the de- the decision. Do we need to brainstorm? Probably that's done best synchronously, either virtually or face-to-face, but there may be other uh, you know, tech forms of technology that you could use versus a you know, face-to-face meeting. And then maybe it's an informational uh, kind of task. You just need to inform people. And uh, sometimes it's useful to bring people together for that, but maybe it's better to send a, like a kind of mass email. You know, uh, Often meetings, uh, uh, one of my colleagues said, in many meetings, we act like human, human bulletin boards. You know, we're just uh, <laughs> reporting to, it, to each other. And I would say if you're feeling that way, probably your, your meetings need to be redesigned. Right. Yeah. But yeah. We could all go back for what's the purpose and then how do we redesign it? Now, I can't resist. I have to ask about this whole notion of interest, which is an interesting word because interest means what is my interest? Do I feel that I belong? Who's in? Who's out? What does it mean to be a member? So there's a lot wrapped up into that word. How do we know that the interest side is in a good spot? Well, a couple. I, I would look at a couple of measures. One we've touched on retention. So, mm-hmm. are we, you know, are we keeping, are we keeping the people that we want to keep? Are we attracting the people that we want to bring to our to our organization? The the other thing that uh, that I would look at, and and there's actually a pretty relatively simple question. I think you could ask about this. Do you, do you, are you inspired by what Mm -hmm. we're trying to do? Um, Is, let's say, the goals that we have for our team, does that advance your goals? Like maybe you want to, you want to learn something new. Maybe you want to become a better professional. Maybe you want to take the next step in your career. The design firm IDEO uh, incorporates this into their, into their project launches. and, And I think it's not a bad idea for, any organization to consider. So when they're launching a, a project, they'll talk about what needs to be get done, you know, design this project or change this technology, whatever the case may be. And then they'll ask each person on the team, okay, what's the whiff of what's in it for you? In, in other words, uh, why, how can this work that we're doing on this, on this shared goal or goals, how can that help you? And, I would strongly encourage all of your listeners to ask that question at, at the next time they're starting a project. And I can guarantee you what you'll find is the energy explodes in a, in a room because people are talking about what's meaningful for them. And I think what you're feeling when that happens is the force of interest. Force of interest. Okay. I love that one. Inspiration. Are you inspired? And just to bother to say, yes, we've got our team goals. 
We've articulated it. We said what we're trying to achieve, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what's in it? What do you want to achieve? What are exactly. your goals in doing this? And just hear that from people and yeah. do the best you can with it from there. Okay, exactly. Mario, this is a perfect place to take a break. My guest today is Mario Musa. The book that we're talking about is The Culture Puzzle, Harnessing the Forces that Drive Your Organization's Success. Four ways, well, first I have to start with culture is there around you, whether you intentionally bring it together or don't bring it together, whether there are two of you or whether there are 200,000 of you, culture exists. And it is a part of how you do things around here in your distinctive way around here. Four forces that drive where that culture is moving and it is dynamic. One is the vision. What are we trying to achieve? How are we going to get there? Two is the uh, interest, who's in, who's out, whose interests are served, what are my goals, what are your goals, what does it mean to belong? Three is the habits, the processes, the patterns, particularly around the meetings we were just talking about. And number four is the innovation. How are we changing and doing things differently? Those four will diagnose where your culture is and what you might do to garden it, nurture it, shift it, tend it, replant it whatever the case may be. All right, when we come back, I want to talk about an outgrowth of culture called tribes and tribalism. We'll be right back. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. 
Welcome back to the show. With me today is Mario Musa. The book we're talking about is The Culture Puzzle. Let me say that again. The book we're talking about today is The Culture Puzzle, Harnessing the Forces That Drive Your Organization's Success. Again, the four forces, the vision, what are we trying to achieve? How are we going to get there? The um, habits, what are the behaviors, patterns, and what values are those reinforcing? The interest, who's in, who's out, what does it mean to belong? Um, how are we managing uh, the, all of those and the innovation piece? I think I mixed up two there. Vision, interest, habits, and um, vision, um, innovation. I'm quitting. I can't speak today. <laughs> all right. One of the phenomena that I see in every organization I go in, and I suspect you do as well, is that we get a culture, but we also get some very tight sub-segments of that culture that we start labeling as tribes and tribalism. So how do you define and diagnose tribalism, and how do you think about it? Is this good? Is this bad? I mean, what's your perspective? Yeah, my perspective is it is. That is, you are always part of a, a tribe, and I'll explain why briefly. We're wired to form tribes. And if I could just step back and just uh, talk a little bit about this concept of, of tribes and then come back to what you can do about it and, and so on, then um, uh, that would be helpful. So way back when, uh, we discovered that we do better when we're part of a group. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on our own, actually, we're pretty pathetic creatures, you know. We're not so strong, you know, we're smart enough, but there are plenty of creatures who are pretty smart and would eat us if they, if they could. So uh, we do better in a group and we do better in a group than we do in pairs. And so this group orientation pretty quickly got wired into our DNA, if you, if you like. And that's the practical point. So we're group oriented and we feel most comfortable in groups. And so the point is, in an organization, there's always, there are always going to be tribes. Now, the, the, the concept of tribe does have a checkered history, and some people don't like it, and we acknowledge that. But the reason we use it is it does carry with it this sense of this kind of timeless, ancient tendency we have to, for, to become part of a group. And again, the point is, the practical point is, will always form these subgroups or, or tribes, uh, no matter what. Uh, there will always be boundaries between one tribe and, and another tribe. Now, uh, there's been discussion for years about the idea of a boundaryless organization, and I love that idea. But the reality is we'll always have to deal with boundaries. Again, earlier in the conversation, we were talking about a key question, who's in our group, who's outside of our group? We're wired to ask that question. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't negative aspects uh, to that, to asking that question and acting on it, because as we all know, there's a dark side to that, in-group, out-group, insiders, outsiders. So the, the whole point of the fact that we can reflect, you know, that is, we have this capacity to reflect and create a vision. The whole point of that is we can step back and ask, is it healthy the way we're forming groups? Do we want to form groups differently? Maybe we're exclusionary. Maybe in our meetings only white men speak. That's a problem. Yeah. So the the point is, the, the this tribal instinct is always at, at play, and you've got to watch for it. And now, um, it is in you know it plays out in different ways in a business context. One way is you know, we form silos, which is a, you know a very common term. 
for talking about groups and barriers or boundaries between groups. And the interesting thing about this, and this is not unrelated to the points that we were just making, is that there's an upside and a downside to silos. Like, you know, there's a finance silo, there's a sales silo, there's a manufacturing silo. The upside is there's focus. Uh, the downside is it's hard to, it can be hard to communicate and collaborate mm-hmm. across those differences. So the uh, another practical point is you should be always working on building connections across tribes and building a tribe of tribes or Stanley McChrystal puts it, uh, a team of, of teams. And for myself and my co-authors of the culture puzzle, a culture is a team of teams or, or, or a tribe of tribes. And yeah, we like the notion of, of uh, what Benedict Anderson, the sociologist calls an imagined community. For us, that's what is, that's the product of creating a vision. You come together, you share with others your vision of where a company is going. You hear from them about how it links to their interests. You try it out. You see if it fits with your ways of working, your habits. You see if you need to adapt those habits and so on. It's through that kind of work, practical work and reflection that you create a vision together, or in other words, imagine a way of working that includes everybody. For us, that's what it means to build a healthy, thriving culture to reach reach that point. So there will always be tribes, but it doesn't mean that you can't bring those tribes together and create a unified, thriving, healthy, humane, productive, innovative culture. Okay. So, and your answer then to tribes that are formed is to constantly work at build, bringing, working across tribes. So we're building bridges yes. between tribes. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And so that might mean having a joint meeting. So you bring together the finance people with the salespeople. And let's say you have it, and we do this all the time uh, in our, our client projects. And the finance people might say, hey, to the salespeople, you're selling products that we can't make any money on. And the, and the salespeople might say, well, this is what our customers want. And then the, both of them together might say, well, we need to bring in the manufacturing people or the product design people because there's a problem here that we can't solve and so on. So I would say that, you know, the practical point is to create forums where you can have those cross-tribal conversations. And, and you know, you can bring someone in to help you have those conversations. Often that's useful, uh, you know, because an outsider isn't kind of pulled by the tribal dynamics in the way that insiders are, or you could identify an internal consultant. Like you identify, you identify one of your colleagues or teammates as the facilitator or the observer. And that person offers observations about what's working or not working in a, in a conversation. But the point is create these forums and then look for ways to create a safe, open conversation. And, and I think a, a, another point that's really critical to remember is nobody's perfect. So uh, that conversation is, is, is going to be freighted. Uh, it, it is going to be difficult at times. Sometimes it'll go swimmingly. It'll be inspiring. 
and everybody gets comes out of themselves and they create kind of this one mind experience and that's extraordinary but then other times it'll be more challenging and you need to tweak and and adapt but the um the bottom line is you need to create those forums and those opportunities to share and talk across differences otherwise that old tribal impulse is going to pull us back into the in-group, out-group thinking, which is so un- unproductive in so many ways. Right, right. Okay, so you did this in terms of the natural tribes, I think, that exist in organizations around functional boundaries um, that have their own metrics, their own performance standards, their own language, and crossing those tribes gets rather difficult. The same can happen across regions where we're a contained unit in this region and the cross boundaries are a little hard to do. I want to come at this from a very different. So I've got everybody in the same building, in the same location, in the same business, same functional yeah. line. And I have a group over here who are really tightly connected. Maybe they've gone through some really difficult times together in the course of the last 20 years in their business, or maybe they just have a lot in common, or maybe they belong to the same golf or tennis club. Whatever right. it is, there's a group that's very tightly connected. Right. And they have a lot of power in the organization, hierarchical power. So formal power, not necessarily informal power, but it becomes, it starts to feel like it's a tribe. Now, it's a very different form of tribe than what you described in terms of the more siloed functional tribes. What do we do with that? The first thing you do is, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to describe this as though it's easy, though of course it's never easy, uh, is to help them see that they're, they're a tribe. And, you know, as we said earlier, culture is like the water that a fish swims in, you know, we're not aware of it. And when we're a tribe in the sense that you're describing it, often we're not aware that we're a tribe. We think, oh, you know, everybody's feeling good. Like, okay, yeah. we go off and we play golf or we go to the basketball game together and we like each other and we get our work done. And it's pretty natural for us to assume that everybody's feeling good about how yeah. we work. So the first thing that um, it's important to do is to make people aware that they're a tribe. And uh, one way to do that is something that you mentioned earlier. Talk to others who aren't in the tribe and bring their experience to those folks uh, and say, here's what we hear when we talk to others. This doesn't align with, it seems, seems it doesn't align with the way you describe your work. What do you make of that? And, and the reason I think it's important to pose the question in that way is, of course, as you know, people have to change their own minds. You know, they have to decide that they want to adapt their behavior. So I think one way to help them move along that process is to share with them data that you gather about experience that others are having that might indicate that Mm -hmm. they're in a tribe. Okay. All right. So I get them to recognize that, yes, we're a tribe and we kind of like it. And yeah, you know, some other people don't feel so good about that. And then they start to feel pretty crummy or they start to say too bad. This is how it's going to go. I mean, we can go in any number of yeah. directions. Is there a next step that they should be taking? Well, then I think you go back to those business metrics we were talking about. So you know, who are they retaining? Who are they retracting? Are, are sales growing? What's their customer base? What are their competitors doing? Uh, I think getting 
you know, traveling to other countries, so to speak, or cultures, uh, mm-hmm. metaphorically, and seeing how other companies go to market, how they re- retain their people, and so on and so forth. That's tremendously useful. So, you know, travel in that in that sense, travel, quote unquote, metaphorically, is very useful because it gets you outside of your accustomed way of thinking, out of your cultural bubble, and helps you th- see that you could work you, you could work differently. You know, where does where does the uh, you know where does the discipline of anthropology come from? I mean, it really it emerged like a uh, hundred years ago or so, and when when social scientists traveled to other parts of the world and they saw, well, not everybody's like us. So I think if you can help, let's say, a tribe in the sense that you're describing, a kind of isolated tribe, see that not everybody is like them, and that has an impact on what they want to what they want to get done. That could that potentially sends a very strong message to them that we need to communicate, collaborate, engage differently than we're doing. I think that plays out in many, many ways for lots of good. I mean, we can point to great growth opportunities and really fabulous customer satisfaction coming out of some of those tight connections. The problem is it really hurts retention and it hurts engagement across a bunch of other people. So I think that's a really interesting thing. Okay, um, let me flip the table on this one. What if I'm a member of a minority group and I feel very strongly that there's a larger tribe and I don't belong and I don't even feel like I have my own tribe what's your advice there what do I need to be thinking my advice always is to ask yourself is there some way that I could connect with this in group if you mm-hmm. if you like so maybe uh, maybe I look different maybe my skin's different maybe um, I'm a different size uh, I have a different background I went to a different school whatever the, the case may be and one of those factors makes me an outsider. Then I would, I, so I, I ask people in that position, is there some way you can connect to the people that you want to be work with and, uh, and then work on that. It, I think we're, we're all different in so many ways. If, if, you know, we have different backgrounds, we have, we, um, we have different aspirations, we have different skills. Even if we look the same, uh, we're right. different. And then sometimes those differences are right in, on the surface and that could be problematic. So the point is, look for ways to connect. And then I think the next question to ask is, do I wanna make the effort to connect in, uh, in, in that way? There's a, a current story that some of your listeners might've been following about the New York Times journalist who ran the 1619 project and didn't get tenure uh, at at um, at a school, and um, there was a big you know big flap about it, and then she decided ultimately to go to another school. Uh, mm-hmm. There were you know there were issues about bringing her in because of her uh, her political point of view, and the point is I thought well that's a good example of someone saying okay actually in the end she got tenure, but. Uh, she decided to go somewhere else. And what she said about it was very interesting and it's and it kind of aligns with what we were just saying. It's, I decided it wasn't worth it to me to work in that kind of institution. I could do my work better elsewhere. So I think that's also an important question. If you've made that effort to connect and you understand why you want to connect and you don't 
feel like you can really be part of the group that you want to be part of, or you'd have to like suppress important parts of yourself to become part of that group. Well, then maybe you have to look elsewhere. And sometimes that's the reality of organizational life. You know, there's not a good fit everywhere. It's true. Fair enough. True. Yes, that is a fascinating story about the 1619 Project lead and her decision to say, ah, never mind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't, need I don't want to go there <laughs> anyway. Yeah, Basically, right. I said it not so kindly as you had yeah. said it. Yeah, um, it, yeah, I think it's a hard one for an awful lot of people to figure out how far am I willing to go in order to fit? How much do I want to fit? What are the right. costs of trying to fit? Exactly. But I like your notion that you can find individuals within that tribe that you can connect to as individuals. And right. that gives you a bit of insight on other ways to connect to the larger group and better information on do you want to connect to the larger group and maybe access in a different way as well. Right. Right. Um, and then I also think there's room for, to form a tribe of misfits. Um, I, I just think there's incredible power in finding the other people who feel tribalist as well. Yes. And, you know, I think what's so interesting about culture in tribes is tribes can form in so many ways. And I think your comments earlier were getting at this, like there might be a tribe around people who have to, you know, who happen to break for coffee every day at three uh, or they ride the same bus route home and they form a tribe or uh, they're all fans of the Philadelphia 76ers and they love sharing stories about last night's game. So there are so many ways that the tribes can form. And sometimes you form around not being part of the dominant tribe. In other <laughs> words, a misfit tribe. You're exactly right. So um, that to me is what one of the aspects of culture that's so fascinating. There's so many sides to it. It's so dynamic. And if you do find a simple way uh, to make sense of it, as I think we've done in the, in the culture puzzle, you can have a lot of fun with it. I mean, it, it, you know, creating a thriving, humane, productive culture is, at, I think, at the root of creating a successful business. And it could also be a lot of fun to work on right, it. Right. You just reminded me, you know, when we think about tribes, we think about you have a loyalty to one tribe, but you just described it in ways that I could be parts of many tribes in an exactly. organization. And that's a very, that is a game changer if you think about this whole tribalism, because that's how we are going to get tribe of tribes. Yeah. When yeah. I recognize I'm in different places. Yeah. Yeah. The, the great anthropologist Clifford Geertz once said that we uh, inhabit multiple webs of significance. That was his, his way to put the point. In other words, uh, you might be part of a company softball team uh, or you're a finance specialist uh, or uh, you commute to work at the same time. So the point is there are so many ways that, that we connect with others and we have multiple tribal memberships. That, that's exactly right. And I think, I think one measure of a healthy culture is that people feel comfortable moving across these tribes. Uh, and if you find that there's a, there's a group that is very insular and doesn't allow people in and people don't leave the tribe and don't communicate with others, that's probably a sign that you need to uh, do some work on your culture. Okay. I have a feeling this notion that you belong to multiple tribes will make a lot of people feel a lot more comfortable because I think there's an anxiety that I have to pick a tribe 
I have to be so dedicated to that tribe that I have nothing else and no other interest and no other aspects of me. And in a culture where there can be multiples, that makes a lot. I mean, to me, that resonates. Maybe other people have different feelings. Okay, two minutes, Mario. What takes okay. you out of your comfort zone? Differences. And you know, I would say that it's both what makes my work, to me, really fascinating and satisfying, but sometimes challenging. So one of the things that I've been able to do over the 30 years of my career as a management consultant is work with many, many different kinds of, of people. So people who dress differently, talk differently, live in a different part of the country. And often I'm taken out of my comfort zone. But one of the things I really enjoy about that experience is it does pull parts out of myself that I think I wouldn't otherwise know about. So on the one hand, dealing with people who are very, very different is takes me out of my comfort zone. But uh, uh, it also is very, very satisfying for the reasons we were just talking about. If I, When I feel like I can step outside of my tribe and understand what it's like to be part of another tribe, uh, I feel like I've taken the most extraordinary journey. The, the novelist, French novelist Marcel Proust once said, the most extraordinary journey of discovery would be to travel into someone else's mind and see the world through their eyes. Yeah. And, and I, I feel that. So that that experience takes me out of my comfort zone, but it's also deeply satisfying. I love that. What a brilliant answer. And on that one, I can't make any more comments. All right, so Mario, we've come to the conclusion for today. Sadly, I think we could keep talking, obviously. My guest today, Mario Musa, the book, The Culture Puzzle, Harnessing the Forces that Drive Your Organization's Success. I think there are two ideas that are really exciting to me in this conversation. One are the four components, the vision, the interest, the habit, and the innovation. I think those four components, when you really understand what they mean and you think about the checklist, you would say, are we healthy or not, are a powerful model to begin to think about what's working and not working in our culture. And I am super excited about this idea of accepting that tribalism is a reality of human beings. And now, how do we get more skilled at moving between tribes? I think that's a powerful thing to think about. All right. So thank you, Mario, for joining us. Um, If you like what you've heard on this podcast, please rate us on your favorite podcast player. We would appreciate that. If you'd like to know more, check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. And otherwise, we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.